This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. David Richards. Stravete. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Gennady. I'm not even going to try and say your name, man. It's Gennady Samukumarov. Yeah, yeah, what he said. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Hello, folks. Do you want to just introduce yourself real quick? Let us know who you are, what, what you've worked on, and all that good stuff. Sure, sure. Hello, everyone. I'm Gennady. I'm a Ruby developer based in Sofia, Bulgaria. I'm an occasional Ruby on Rails contributor, and I'm the maintainer of the Web Console gem, which is the beginning to which comes by default in uh, new Rails installs. I also run a few events in Bulgaria. Uh, one of them is called Balkan Ruby, and it's a Ruby conference, uh, international Ruby conference. Um, and the, the other one is called PartialConf, which is a functional programming conference. So you said that you, you work on the, the web console. And yeah. I'm curious, did, did you build it or you just maintain it now? Or how did that all work out? Okay, so the console started as a Google Summer of Code project back in 2013. So I was a student under Guillermo Iguaram. So in a way, I built it with the help of Guillermo and David, because mm-hmm. when we started, we, the idea was very loose. We had to find, to find the project. We just wanted to put a repo, a Ruby repo on the browser, but we didn't know what it would be useful, what to be used for. So the first two versions of WebCon was actually just a repo in a browser that runs in, your current, in the state of your current program. Then it was a terminal emulator. It was really a terminal emulator running the Rails console command. Mm-hmm. And eventually, uh, we found the current usage, which is, um, okay, um, you can spawn a console everywhere in your program, and we can uh, show it uh, to you afterwards. You know, it's a, it's a debugger that doesn't stop the world. So we eventually found that, like, in version 2 of the project. So the console has, um, has been turned around a few times, and uh, yeah, it, took, it took some time to actually found, find its place and shape as a... As to it is today. So, uh, I guess the thing that I'm wondering is, I, I don't know about your browser. Maybe you're running something a little bit different, but uh, mine doesn't have anything that will run Ruby on anything like WebAssembly or Transpilot or anything. So, how, how do you actually run Ruby in a web console? So, you actually send the Ruby to the server, and the server executes it, and the server is uh, your Rails application, uh, and then to give the result back to you. So, it has a we have this thin layer of front-end code, which sends the Ruby code to the server and then shows the result. So with the current web console, everything is executed on in your program. The way I like to think of a web console is uh, as a fancier, but in a way, 
you right. you leave it in your program. Build debugger doesn't stop your program. Program it lets your program run, and then we show it uh, to you after the request is done. So you can introspect your program at this point of time. So I guess the other question is uh, about security concerns, right? Is this something oh, yeah. you don't want to run in production, or oh, no, you, you don't want to do that? It's um, you can execute Ruby code, which means you can execute everything. So it's a huge Okay. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So you can use this at home. Don't use it on your server. Yeah, we have <laughs> uh, we have gone a long way to actually uh, make it really hard for you to run it on production. Uh, we don't include it in production by default. And if you run it on production, we have like configuration flags which you have to say in a way. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Please run it on production. So the current uh, security model is kind of loose. It's uh, based on IP authorization and Trust on development and mostly trust your uh, local host, which uh, may give you some problems if you are running a development environment in background or Docker. But other than that, than that um, we try not to, yeah, we don't uh, recommend running it on production because it's a uh, really skill. Yeah, it's one of those features that I think a lot of people overlook in Rails because it's something that's added in by default when you start a new Rails application. But then you have to proactively add in a ERB tag to launch the web console on that particular view. And a lot of times people will either just throw a raise, like a ERB and a raise, and if they have something like better errors or something, yeah. then they're able to essentially get the same thing. But this way, you can still interact with the page and interact with the objects, just like you would if you have better errors or something, without you know losing the full rendering of the application. So yeah. I think it's something that a lot of people just forget about. And they don't go to that as their first option. They do a raise or a binding pry or something like that instead. So what use cases over, you know, what I just mentioned, would you really think that Web Console has a place for? Web Console is in a way, in a way uh, alternative for that. Um, for example, if you have like a wrong result and you're wondering why, your, your problem like doesn't raise an exception, you can uh, try to track it interactively. Just bounding consoles at this point of time. I did a talk uh, in in Ruby Kaiki about the implementation of uh, Web Console, and I was debugging a real error that happened on the website of uh, our local meetup. And for things like this, it was really convenient for me to just um, say, okay, something is wrong. I don't know what, what, what's wrong. So just bounding some consoles and while rendering the page, uh, figuring out what exactly is wrong. So I'm not sure whether we have advertised this feature of Web Console uh, very well. I think most of people are familiar with Web Console through the console in the, in the errors, but this is just like a special code, special case of Web Console. You can spawn this console everywhere in your program. So you can debug the state um, while your program is running. You don't need to stop it. Uh, so for me, it's kind of super useful. If, if you get a wrong result, just check it out. With, uh, mm -hmm. So what would happen if you know, because I've done this before in other situations, you know, and it's horrible that I put a bit of debugging code within my application and it actually got committed and shipped. So if you have that ERB tag in there with the web console and that accidentally gets shipped to production, what would happen? We, we don't include web console in production, so you, you would most likely crash. But we have a few protections for that. We raise an error if you spawn two consoles because it's really hard for us to figure out which which one 
uh, we should uh, render the console for, in which context we should execute code from. But if you have just one console left out in the code, you're kind of on your own. It's like what happens when you forget a debugger statement in your front end code. In production, it will most likely crash because we, we really try not to include web console in production. By default, it's not even uh, uh, in the development group in, the, in your uh, gem file. Mm -hmm. so, oh, I got it. So okay. when when you pr deploy to production, it'll just say, I don't even know what this tag is. Yeah, exactly. No exactly. So Web Console works... Um, um, Web Console at its core is um, Rack Middleware, uh, which sits between your requests. So every time you say console in your code, we leave like a cookie in, in a thread local storage, and the Rack Middleware knows that, okay, you request the console to be rendered, and then we will render it. So in production, you won't have even this middleware in your uh, middleware stack because you you won't need it. And again, it's really insecure. So we we've made sure that it's really hard for you to run it in production. Still, a lot of people ask us to run it on production. It's not a good idea. It's really insecure to run it on production. So if it's just rack middleware, can I run it on like Sinatra or Rhoda or one of the other uh, web frameworks out there too? We depend a lot on uh, active support, but if you make a bit of effort, yeah, we, we, we could actually make it uh, better on Sinatra uh, or just any uh, Rack framework. It's just that uh, nobody so far uh, requested this or uh, wanted this support. Hmm, cool. But it, in its current state, no, because we depend on uh, active support. So uh, how exactly does it pass things to the back end? Uh, does it just send the command back and then get the output back? Okay, so how Web Console works is um, when you say console, um, we save a reference to the to the Ruby binding of your current context. So mm -hmm. if you want to execute Ruby code uh, dynamically in Ruby, you have to do it through this uh, object called binding. Even when you call eval, uh, kernel eval, the kernel eval method actually implicitly finds a binding and executes the code in it. Mm -hmm. So if you want to execute Ruby code, you need to execute it in a bind. And this the binding objects are kind of special because they hold the state of the current um, stack frame. So if you are holding a binding, you're holding a reference to everything you have in your current frame, like every instance, well, every instance variable, every local variable, every class, your current self, everything. So we store this somewhere and we have to store this in memory. We can't serialize it across processes or stuff like this because it's super internal um, for your current uh, process. So when you requ request to um, when you say, okay, I want to execute uh, a console here, we save the current binding, uh, we save it in memory, and then uh, we know how to find it through the web interface. So every time you say, okay, execute me this command, we know um, how, how to find it, and actually the Rack Middleware uh, dispatches a few post methods. So every time you type a com command on the front end, it's hitting um, the Rack Middleware again, and the Rack Middleware knows, okay, this is input, I need to execute it and give you the output. So that's how we actually communicate um, from the browser to the development process. And like, so let's say that you set this up. You, do you just in, include the gem in your in your Rails app? I guess it comes by default now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, by default it's included in the development um, in the development group in your uh, gem file. So you don't need to do anything. So if you want to use Web Console in your application, you just need to say console somewhere. Console is a <laughs> is a method in kernel. We have monkey monkey patch kernel, so Everywhere in the program, you can just say console, and it will uh, save your current context, and uh, the Rack Middleware will then find it and can execute code to this context. 
And if you want to embed it in a in a view in Rails, you can again just say console in in the view itself. So the oh, it just, that's nice. Yeah, the Rails views are actually compiled to Ruby code. Everything you can call in there, you can call it in um nice. in console. Actually, using Web Console to understand the Rails views is really nice because you can see what the self is and um, the local variables, uh, like how this um, template code you had got built into Ruby code and what you can actually access from it. Uh, you can see how Action View actually includes so many modules into it, how your helpers work. So Web Console is kind of nice for even learning how the view rendering works. And I think it's really nice when you learn Rails you can use it to try to make sense of things, how, how they work. Yeah, I, I would think that'd be one of the most exciting things. I, I know for me, the views, the stack, everything that's included and how it's included is always a little bit of a, of a black box for me. I know what I can do yeah. or I have habits, but I don't quite know what's going on. And that's after a lot of years of use. So being able to just open the web console and say, yeah, well, what's going on here? What do I have? And what was I thinking? And it's usually for me anyway, when I've had problems in, in some of my code, it's because I didn't quite understand the Rails way, how they organize yeah. things and get me ready for each step. And so being able to take a look, it, it starts to, to dawn on me that, oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> I was <Yeah>. not thinking. <laughs> that's a yeah, that's There's just a lot of stuff for you. And until you like, learn all those conventions, it's really daunting. So the console can can help you with that as well. Yeah. Yep. I, <laughs> interestingly, I learned Rails on a laptop whose uh it was just an old, old laptop. And my uh <laughs> my graphics card was going out. So I went to just a terminal mode only. And I learned the models really, really, really well. And it took me a while to come back around because I didn't have ability to even see graphics. <laughs> when I was so, so I was slow to the views, and so some of that black box around views and controllers and how the handoff works, and what yeah. a what a clean a clean uh, approach to to delivering things looks like. I it took me a while to to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, this convention comes by the cost of uh, many abstractions and many implicit things which you have to eventually learn. So is there anything similar or can Web Console do something like this where you have a separate JavaScript front-end app, let's say it's Angular or something like that, and then you have a Ruby API backend. Are you able to use Console? Is there any kind of JavaScript plugin that, that will allow you to integrate with that? We have to finish browser extensions because uh, every time you want to debug something, we have to inject this uh, front-end code into your code and... A lot, of, a lot of the times, this can mess up your layout. So in a way to solve this, uh, we wanted to build um, ex browser extensions. So we have a prototype of an extension that um, you can run uh, the console through a development app in your uh, browser development tools. So you can definitely use it like this. So far, um, again, we didn't have that much interest into this, so we never <laughs> finished those prototypes. But it is possible to use it like this. Uh, and eventually, I think this may be even a better idea. We have some plans, like we call it always on mode. When in development, we can we can always have the console running. And if you have your browser development tools, maybe you can open them and just execute code of any frame of your program. Mm -hmm. So who knows? You can use it like this, but so far, just the standard um, frontend.coms um, with the bundle gem. That's what most of the people use. So I know something interesting about the console is that it actually works both on CRuby, JRuby, and it just works on Rubiness as well. 
but we haven't checked this support. And uh, making this um, this whole interaction uh, work is uh, kind of specific. Every it's specific to every interpreter. So we have um, one way of um, you know getting a binding uh, in C Ruby, one way of getting the binding in J Ruby. But it actually works on JRuby, guys. If you if you have tested the console on JRuby, no, it can work there. So. That's really cool. And I think that's a really important note because a lot of people, when they are developing a gem or something, they only keep one type of Ruby or one interpreter in mind. And that's usually whatever they have installed on default or whatever the CI is running. You know, they don't really take into account like, you know, the C Ruby, J Ruby, or the MRI, you know, if, you know, whatever they're using. So I think that's pretty awesome that you guys are proactively taking into account all the different interpreters and it works across platform. Yeah. You know, every writing debuggers is, um, is a tricky business and um, every, every interpreter has its uh, own quirks. Like it used to be really hard to do debuggers in uh, Ruby. I don't know if uh, Julia Evans talked about uh, how she has to preserve different headers across different uh, uh, Ruby Ruby interpreter versions, so she can make sense of those tags in her um, RBSpy program. But for Ruby, the things got way better uh, throughout the years. Like in the last four or five years, we got way better APIs. So writing tools like Web Console is getting quite easy. But still, those um, those utilities are not in- available in Rubyland. The APIs that we use to build uh, to build uh, Web Console for uh, Ruby are uh, the TracePoint API, which is a way to handle uh, interpreter events. So, for example, every time uh, an error is raised, we are hooked up on that event, and that's how we get uh, a stack trace uh, for uh, when the errors, errors happen. But if you say console, uh, we need to unroll the current stack, and uh, we cannot do that in Rubyland. So we're using the debug inspector API for that. And this API is available only in CRuby. And I think that if this API is exposed to Rubyland and it's standard, standardized, um, we can write a lot of the debugging tools only in Ruby and they will work on both C Ruby and J Ruby. So it depends. If we build a bit of tooling around it and we have official APIs across both C Ruby and J Ruby, maybe we can build uh, things like Bybug only in Ruby and no, no need to no couple ourselves to C Ruby internals or J Ruby internals and things like that. So is this still under active development or are you mostly just fixing any problems you find in it? But mostly it's maintenance right now. We don't have any major features plans. Features plans. So yeah, it's a stable project which we must maintain at this point of time. What was the hardest part of putting something like this together? Getting it to work. <laughs> Just getting it to work. <laughs> to work was really hard. <laughs> no, really, because um, I think we discount that on a lot of things we work on, right? It's, <laughs> it, it's not, oh, it was trying to figure out how, how this one feature needed to go. No, just getting it to work sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> just getting it to work was, was hard. And oh, sometimes another hard thing that we had was the integration with the error pages. When you raise an error in Rails, you're not seeing uh, actually the first point of in which uh, the error was written. For example, uh, if you're uh, working with the strong parameters API, and if you have an unpermitted uh, param, the error will be raised within uh, the Rails framework code. And we won't show you the Rails framework code. We'll show you the application code. So it was really hard um, to actually get, okay, uh, we're showing you your first application frame, not the first frame in which uh, the error occurred. And it was mm-hmm. hard for Web Console to actually know, okay, 
the web page is showing you this piece of code. So the web console has to find uh, this frame and give you the context of this exact frame because it will be, it's really confusing uh, for the people to see your application code and execute code in actually action pack or Ruby or Rails framework internal code. So there are many small details like this which we had to figure out along the way. And yeah, just finding the right context, it's, um, it's hard in uh, some situations. In some situations, um, you know, getting uh, the web console on the error page again is kind of hard because uh, you have to preserve the context in which the error was raised. And again, this is not so trivial. So yeah, the hardest part was getting it, <laughs> getting it to work and making sure that it's stable and it doesn't crash across mm-hmm. interpreters. And um, that's that's something where I've been in situations where it has given back the rail stack trace, not the actual part of my application. And I'm like what the heck is going on here? Like, I have no idea how to debug this. It's not until, you know, you know, I dig a lot deeper to actually find where it's in my application part. So having that kind of precision is really crucial for debugging quickly. Yeah. And to be honest, we, had, we didn't get the proper bindings in the first few versions. So maybe this put off a lot of people because they were trying to execute code and it wasn't in the proper context and they were like, huh, this is no good. So getting stuff like this right is kind of important. So now dealing with errors, it's tricky. You want to you wanna be as uh, as convenient as you can get because people are con- frustrated, they're confused because again, it's an error. So whatever you can do to make it easier for them, uh, uh, we'll help. Hey folks, have you tried out RubyMine? RubyMine is an IDE dedicated to Ruby and Rails development. It allows you to quickly find and fix code smells, refactor code, and develop faster thanks to smart auto-completion suggestions. RubyMine comes with a powerful GUI-based testing and debugging suites. With three major releases a year, the IDE continuously becomes more robust and adds more features. Learn more and get a 30-day trial at devchat.tv slash RubyMine. Anything else you guys want to dive into with this, or should we talk about uh, the Balkan conference for a minute? Let's talk about the conference. That's exciting to me. Yeah. Okay, so Balkan Ruby is a new conference which we started this year. It comes out after we hosted um, Euroquin in 2016. Uh, we were uh, a small team of uh, three people. Uh, I don't know if you guys know about Euroquin, but Euroquin is um, a really big um, Ruby conference in Europe. And every year it's uh, organized by different people who, who were attendees of the previous Euroquin. So in 2015, we pitched Sofia, Bulgaria as so the next uh, city for Euroquin, and people voted for it. And they just gave us the conference. Like Euroquin is a really big conference, and the people just give it to you to organize. So we had our um, conference organizing, you know, school <laughs> organizing Euroku 2016. And after this conference, we wanted to start our own conference in, in Bulgaria. So that's how Balkan Ruby came out, came out to be. Uh, we wanted to organize it in 2017, but by the time we scheduled it, there were many um, Ruby conferences in the autumn. So we decided to put out another conference, which is PartialConf, our functional conference. And when we found a better date for the conference in 2018, we just started this brand new international free conference in Bulgaria. This year, um, we had 14 speakers from all, all around the world. We had Doug Holman, Robert Musogo, Dinah Shea. We had pretty interesting lineup. And for 2019, um, we're doing uh, Balkan Ruby again. It will be on uh, May 17th and 18th in Sofia, Bulgaria. Uh, we will have this time uh, Aaron Patterson and Aileen Yuchitel as keynoters. And yeah, we'll be announcing it pretty soon. I hope that by the time this episode uh, 
it's really true. Actually, have the have the tickets running for Balkan Week 2019. So you're getting these these conferences going. Is there is there a pretty strong, healthy uh, Ruby following out in the in, in Bulgaria and in and in Eastern Europe generally? Yeah, I think in Bulgaria we have a really, we have a small Ruby community, but um, we're really vocal. We do lots of events, uh, um, lots of meetups. Um, we had like 10 Rails Girls events. So it's not comparable to like the Java industry in Bulgaria or the c industry in Bulgaria, but pretty active, pretty healthy community. Ruby is quite alive and well in, in Bulgaria. And I think people from Europe find it interesting because they get to visit a new country and get to see uh, our community. So it's not just in Bulgaria, in our area, I think we have uh, lots of interesting companies. Uh, in Bulgaria, for example, Product Hunt. Most of the development of Product Hunt is uh, based in Bulgaria. Uh, in Serbia, um, we have the Semaphore CI guys based in Novi Sad. So we are rolling, rolling out um, some interesting uh, products from our region. Again, it, maybe it's not as, uh, as big as in the States, but it's pretty it's small but active community. Nice. Yeah, I, I find it's interesting. Um, I was around with Ruby in 2004. So there had been people that have been using Ruby for a long time, but Rails was new. It was really interesting as communities develop, people start to enjoy, you know, what Ruby can offer. It gets really fun to build um, build an organization around that and empower people to do great things, you know, simply and directly. So I think that'd be fascinating to do work you know, with people just learning Ruby rather than people that have done a hundred apps and <laughs> and they're yeah. just keeping up. First, that's how we get um, most of our Rubies. We actually convert them because they always work on something else. And if we want to find a good Ruby developer, we need to find like a good Java developer and teach him Ruby and who's willing to learn Ruby because Ruby isn't that popular in Bulgaria, but, but again, it's getting traction, getting better and better throughout the years. So that's just like one of my coworkers. I finally got him off Vim and started using VS Code. I mean, sometimes you just have to show people the light and you know get them to switch. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay, so we you shut you down. <laughs> on, uh, VS Code, I can help help you switch from Emacs. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> oh, I've been on VS Code for six months. Uh, you already Maybe switched. Good job. I already switched. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll give it a chance just so that I can say that it's terrible. But uh, yesterday I had a 20-minute pairing session and I made sure Emacs and Space Max is running before I would even start <laughs> for those few minutes. <laughs> yeah. We like our I tools. Mean, I enjoy my Terminal Vim. I'm so used to the Terminal. I cannot get rid of the Terminal Vim. But I get why people like VS Code. It's just so much easier than... Uh, learning Vim and setting up all the plugins and just maintaining this. <laughs> I'm so used to it by now. I cannot write on something else, but uh, I see that people just code. <laughs> Maybe I'm so feeble-minded that if my if my editor changes a little bit, I can't think. That Maybe that's what the real problem is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I used uh, Emacs for a long time, and I actually turned on the Emacs key bindings in VS Code. And so... Yeah, I'm still I'm still essentially using Emacs. I just get all the the nice extras that are offered by VS Code, and it's not as heavy-handed as an IDE, and so I yeah. don't feel like I'm like 
okay, there are 10 zillion things here that, yeah, I don't have to worry about any of that garbage. Yeah, it's surprisingly hard to set up um, tooling for language like Ruby or Python in Vim or Emacs. Just getting like IntelliSense to work or something like this. It, you have to learn a lot of Vim to <laughs> make this work. Yep. I think the key with the editor or Ruby or whatever tools we're using is just that expressiveness, you know, that it can translate from the way I think to the way I, I want to get things delivered. As long as I can get there quickly. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't want to think about the fact that I'm using an editor. I just want to think about the fact that I'm writing code. And yeah. so as much as I can get that out of my way, that, I mean, that's a happy thing, so... And that's why I think uh, VS Code has such an appeal now because most of the things just work. So you can just do work. You don't need to set up stuff to make your development experience uh, better. Yeah. So how many attendees have you guys had at the conference? Okay, so uh, for 2018, we had 150 attendees, but we also had a pretty small venue. So it looked super packed. Uh, for next year, <laughs> uh, we hope that we can get... Uh, we can get more, maybe 200, 300 people. I have to say that uh, my the, the conferences that I most attend enjoy attending are the ones where they're about that size, about 150 people. Because then I can kind of see everybody. I can talk to you know, most of the people in the room at some point during the conference. And yeah, it's, it's just a little bit more intimate experience. The larger conferences, I feel like I'm kind of lost in the crowd. And even though I tend to know people or you know, whatever at the conference, it's, I don't know, it's, it's just different for me. So yeah, I, I, I get wanting to grow the conference and offer opportunity for more people to attend it. But, you know, you, you tend to have kind of a special thing at the same time. Yeah, I can agree with you here. People tend to be more communicative uh, when, when they're in the smaller batches. Not if you have a thousand people in a conference, uh, the people are kind of afraid to uh, talk to each other. Yeah, one thing I've noticed it, successful conferences, bigger ones, is they, they tend to make it easy to break into small groups and mm -hmm. to see the same people a few times throughout the conference. So that, you know, I, I've noticed in big conferences that sometimes they, you know, there's thousands of people there and we might see the same person twice if we know who they are. So what people tend to do is they just kind of hover around the, the famous ones or the ones that are doing something big. But there's so many things that even the new learners can teach and show, you know, or the excitement or the conversations. Like, you know, if I just start talking about a project I'm on at a conference, somebody say, oh yeah, that reminds me of, and then they'll t teach me something I didn't know. And I end up doing things differently on my projects. I did that once as Alistair Cockburn uh, had come in to a conference I was at and we were just out in the hall. We talked for about an hour, two hours about things. And I had new ideas about how to structure my, my project just because um, we were talking, you know, obviously he's seen a lot of projects um, over the years. He's one of the signers of the um, Agile Manifesto. So he's been around for a while, but it was powerful because it's just, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversation talking about projects. And, and I find that works anytime in a conference. If people can just get to know each other for a minute, talk about what they're working on. It's always productive. Yeah. I think that having um, a single track conference um, helps because you don't get to choose uh, one talk over another and that way people segregate. I mean, some people can talk about this talk, some people can talk about the other talk. And if you have a single talk, a single track, everybody will be talking about this specific talk. Something that we do in our conferences, I don't know what you guys think about that, is uh, we always uh, delay the questions. 
after the talk. We don't we don't we don't have uh, interactive Q and A sessions. So we, we always say if you wanna ask the speaker something, just find the speaker after the talk and talk to him or her about it. What do you guys think about um, having specific time allocated for Q and A in a conference? One thing I also like is when the attendees set up a back channel. So they'll create a Slack channel or IRC channel. And then a lot of those questions will pile up there. And then the speaker can come back later and, and talk about you know, specific questions during their talk. You know, if, if they're not already answered. Sometimes they get answered before the talk's even over. But <laughs> So is there anything else you're working on now? Right now, I'm, I'm busy preparing um, ArshaConf, which will be on 13th of November this year. Which one's that one? Uh, this is partial conf, our functional conference. Okay. Partial conf. Got it. Yeah. Nice. yeah partial function applications. Yeah. We are just a small group of group of people. We're just three people organizing Balkan Ruby and uh, partial conf. Um, so we kind of feel a bit more indie uh, organizing smaller international conferences. Uh, but we think how our friends get organized um, more and more um, international conference, conferences in Bulgaria. We have a very active uh, conference team, but most of our local conf- conferences are just in Bulgaria with local speakers. And we're seeing more and more people just making international conferences. And lots of foreign people, uh, lots of foreign attendees come, lots of foreign speakers come. So I think it's healthy to have more and more um, international co- conferences in, in our region. Cool. So how do people find out about these different conferences? Do they have websites, I'm assuming? We're building a conference for our company called noevents.com. Other than that, uh, balconruby.com, uh, partialconf.com. We have a Twitter at balconruby and we have a Twitter handle for partialconf at partialconf. Yeah, this is awesome. For, yeah, for balconruby, you can find updates about it on, on Twitter. Nice. All right. Well, if we don't have anything else to talk about, let's do some picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter dev chat in the how did you hear about us section. Uh, David, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I've been uh, listening to this <laughs> a great book. It's called uh, Creative Quest by Questlove. So you might know him from the Jimmy Fallon show. And a great guy, very interesting. And um, so I've got a link to that book, which is amazing. And then also just an overview of what Questlove is about. And to me, that links to my life in the sense that um, I'm always creating something and figuring out how to how to approach a problem in a way that I don't get in my own way. So, <laughs> which for me takes extra effort. So I like having things like this around where I I continue to uh, to see see problems in a new in a new way 
and, and, and approach it differently. So Creative Quest by Questlove. Nice. David, do you have some, or Dave, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, sure. So I'll get back to my tools picks. So uh, clamps. If you do not have clamps in your wood shop, then you should get some clamps because they're absolutely necessary when you're trying to bind two pieces of wood together with glue. They are super helpful. So I picked up some DeWalt clamps recently and I've absolutely loved them. And they have so much strength that uh, this past weekend, I was actually out power washing and staining our fence. And I realized that one of the posts had come completely detached from the railing that all the boards are nailed up to. So I just got one of these big clamps that I had gotten, these DeWalt clamps, and I was able to just squeeze it right back on the nails got pushed right through. And then I just secured it with the screw. So clamps are awesome. What kind of clamps? It's a DeWalt. Are you so using it's spring clamps or C-clamps? Or? Oh, uh, it's just one of the, that has a little trigger that will you know push the two ends together. Okay. So you just kind of squeeze it a couple of times to tighten it up? Yep. So but it was able handy. to... You can do them one-handed. Oh, yeah. So... Uh, that's one pick, and I'll pick a taboo pick, uh, Action Text. If you haven't played around with it, it's really cool. And if you've ever had to do any kind of WYSIWYG in your application, it doesn't have to be a, a CMS or anything like that, but a lot of times you want to provide some kind of WYSIWYG, or it's a what-you-see-is-what-you-get editor within your application. And in Rails 6, they are including Action Text, which is backed by Tricks and active storage for image uploading and playing around with it. It's really cool. It's something that I think is going to be a good overall addition to um, the Rails applications that have, you know, the action view and all that stuff. Awesome. Um, I'm going to jump in with a few picks. Now, mine are a little more focused on other things. Uh, The first pick that I have, and this is something that I've been playing with uh, for a little bit, um, or listening to, sorry, for the last week or so, is The Diabetes Code by Dr. Jason Fung. Um, and uh, basically, he walks through some of the problems with the traditional views on how diabetes works and why the different treatments out there for diabetes, I'm a type 2 diabetic, um, why those tend not to work. And it pretty much explains why I've had issues uh, going to different doctors trying to actually get help with my uh, with my diabetes. So anyway, it's it's been kind of interesting just listening to that and realizing, oh yeah, these these doctors have no idea what they're dealing with. So yeah, I've been trying to find a new doctor that actually will work for me. One other pick that I have, and this is something that I'm going to go back to, I haven't had health insurance for a while, which sounds crazy for a type 2 diabetic. Um, I've been doing the keto diet and it's been, I've I've been able to keep my blood sugar mostly under control with that. You know, occasionally I go crazy for a few days, my blood sugar will start to climb again. Um, but it gets back under control with the keto diet. But I would still like to be able to talk to a doctor. I just need to find a new one. But anyway, as far as health insurance goes, uh, the way that I've found my health insurance in the past, and I have been absolutely happy with them, is by going through a local company that uh, kind of does a lot of financial services. So they also have helped me find uh, auto insurance, home insurance, and things like that. And the way that I found them is through Dave Ramsey's um, certified what do they call them? Uh, anyway, they're serv- uh, certified service providers. Um, I can't remember the exact term that he uses, but it's something like that. And uh, 
anyway, he just recommends solid people. They give solid financial advice and, you know, turned me on to this company that has helped me with a lot of these other things. So if you're looking for one of these, they're endorsed local providers, that's what he calls them. So if you're looking for, for health insurance, home insurance, life insurance, all that kind of stuff, go talk to one of those, those folks because I've dealt with one or two other ones and they're all really, really awesome people and straight shooters. So, you know, whether you agree with Dave Ramsey on other particular issues or not, his recommendations for local providers is solid. So, uh, Gennady, what are your picks? Okay, so lately I've been reading a lot of nonfiction books. So, what I just finished is, uh, is the biography of Nelson Mandela called Long Love to Freedom. It's actually an amazing story. And if you're curious a little bit about history and uh, South Africa and just the commitment of Nelson Mandela and like his struggle, it's a fascinating story. I think you guys can check it out. Awesome. And if people want to find you online, where do they go? Uh, I'm Jason Kovarov everywhere. So you can find me at GitHub at Jason Kovarov on Twitter at Jason Kovarov. And I have a website called jasonkovarov.com with just my social links. Awesome. Well, that was fun. Uh, definitely interesting to talk about. And, uh, you know, thanks for all the work on the web console. Um, I found it helpful. Sounds like uh, Dave and David have both found it helpful. So thank you. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. Thank you. Yeah. Talk to you later. All right. We will call it a wrap right there. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.